You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the March 13, 2023 Monday reading of the Denver Post. My name is Dee Heislip. Today we will be reading the following main articles. Daily Prices Higher at the Ticket Windows, written by Tiny Riccardi of the Denver Post. U.S. Moves to Head Off a Potential Bank Crisis by Ken Sweet, Christopher Ruggaber, Chris McGarrian, and Kathy Busowitz of the Associated Press. Anti-Trump GOP Voters Mostly Loyal in 2022 by Hannah Fingerhut of the AP and following up with miscellaneous articles. Daily Prices Higher at Ticker Windows Resorts try to encourage advanced purchases and control crowds by Tiny Riccardi of the Denver Post. Vail Resorts recently announced prices for next ski season's Epic Pass and Epic Pass Local, which are now on sale for $909 and $676, respectively. That's an 8% increase compared to the season prior for unlimited access to some or all of Vail's skiing destinations. But for folks who plan to ski... Five days or more at Colorado's biggest resorts, that's about as cheap as it gets. According to the National Ski Areas Association, NSAA, daily lift tickets in the Rocky Mountain region have increased from an average price of $97 in 2013 to $197 in 2022. That figure aggregates prices from Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana. In other words, Skiers who don't buy passes in advance pay significantly more than those who do, especially if they buy them on busy days. That's because more resorts have embraced the idea of dynamic pricing on daily tickets, meaning the cost at the box office window fluctuates depending on consumer demand and other factors. While the practice isn't new, it has become more widespread thanks in part to pandemic restrictions that forced resorts to limit crowds. Advocates say dynamic pricing enables ski area operators to prepare for and provide guests with a better experience, but others see it as price gouging. One ski area in Arizona, for example, recently came under fire when the price for a daily pass exceeded $300 following a big storm. So far, Colorado hasn't hit that mark, but it may not be far away. Walk up to the ticket window at Vail Ski Resort the week of March 13th, and you'll be paying $275 for a day pass. Steamboat Springs Ski Resort is also charging $275 per day on select dates in March. It's very much like buying an airline ticket or booking a room in a hotel, said Melanie Mills, president and CEO of trade group Colorado Ski Country USA. As a ski area sells more and more tickets for a particular week, they're able to say, I'm managing my inventory and I'm going to raise the price because I'm focused on maintaining the overall experience. The move away from daily ticket sales toward advanced purchases began with the advent of the Epic Pass, Mills said. Prior to its debut in 2008, when it cost $579, season passes were extraordinarily expensive and typically granted skiers access to a single resort. A decade later, Altera Mountain Resorts introduced the rival Icon Pass, launching an annual competition to bring skiers to their slopes. Others, such as the Indy Pass and Mountain Collective, have come online since. 
Colorado Ski Country USA also sells passes and discount cards that can be redeemed at its member resorts. Jeff Blumenfield, vice president of the International Skiing History Association, lauds the passes as phenomenal deals for frequent skiers, but acknowledges they penalize the day skier, the person who just wants to come and try. I'd be like, it'd be like me trying to take up skydiving, Blumenfield said, comparing the cost for someone trying the sport for the first time. You have to take a lesson, you have to get in an airplane, you have to go tandem, and to do it continually, it's expensive. Skiing requires that, too. In the Rocky Mountain region, season passes accounted for 55.7% of total skier visits to resorts during the 2021-22 season, while daily multi-day tickets, those that must be used within a certain time period, accounted for 31.4% of visits, according to NSAA figures. The remaining share includes packs of tickets that can be used anytime, off-duty employees and comp admission, said spokesperson Adrian Saya Isaac. Nationwide season passes were used 52.3% of the time, while daily or multi-day tickets accounted for 36.9% of visits. In the old days, skiers could find discounted lift tickets at gas stations, grocery stores, or in coupon books at concept known as variable pricing, but technology has drastically transformed the way consumers buy tickets, as well as offering resorts the flexibility to manage crowds, Mills said. You can have lower prices during time periods when business levels are lower, and if you want to ski during a time when it's very popular and during peak periods, the price is going to be higher, she said, and now we have the tools to make those changes pretty rapidly. A much better way to do it. A dynamic pricing has been commonplace for hotels, airlines, and concert venues. However, the practice is also being adopted in less expected places. Cinema Behemoth AMC Entertainment recently announced plans to charge different ticket prices for seats within its movie theaters. Seats with better sight lines will soon be more expensive than those in the front row. Depending on where they plan to go, skiers may or may not see dynamic pricing at work. On Vail's network of resort websites, skiers can plug in the first day they anticipate skiing and compare the online price to what they'd spend at the walk-up window, but prices also fluctuate by the week. In early March, the price to buy a daily ticket online for mid-March at Vail Mountain was $262, while late March cost $247 versus $275 at the window for both weeks. An early April ticket was 208 versus 245 on the window. The more tickets you buy, the steeper the discount. Still, a five-day ticket for a ski trip beginning April 3rd would have set you back $900 online, about the same price as an Epic Pass. We typically set our lift ticket prices at the start of the season and reevaluate if needed as the season goes on, Vail spokesperson Sarah Olson said by email. Another note on lift tickets is that they are fully refundable, she pointed out, and we know some guests are willing to pay more for that flexibility, whereas passes are non-refundable, but uh, for better value, more flexibility, and more choice. Comparatively, privately owned Telluride ski resort charges $209 per day during some weeks and $219 during others. In December, before all of the resort's terrain was open, tickets ran $162 per day. 
A spokesperson declined to comment on the company's pricing strategy. On Arapahoe Basin Ski Area's website, customers can compare lift ticket costs on a monthly calendar where prices vary daily by day. Weekends typically carry a more expensive price tag, and the calendar notes specific dates when inventory is low and prices are expected to increase. Chief Operating Officer Alan Hensroth said A-Basin has used dynamic pricing in some form for about six years, but that it's only one piece of a complicated equation to determine the cost of lift tickets. Generally speaking, the further in advance you purchase, the cheaper it's going to be, and the price goes up closer to the actual ski day, Hensroth said. A Basin is continually striving to manage what Hensroth calls its comfortable carrying capacity, or the maximum number of skiers it can support based on parking capacity, lift and trail occupancy, and how many pass holders might show up to the mountain. On a sold-out day, the resort can host up to 4,140 skiers, Hensroth said. We had a period where we did have too many people visiting on our busy times. Parking was a mess. The highway was a mess. Lots of frustrated guests, lots of frustrated employees, he said. Raising prices aims to disincentivize skiers on peak days. At the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, the state required ski resorts to limit their daily guests in order to mitigate the spread of the coronavirus. To do that, A Basin capped the number of season passes and daily lift tickets it sold, while also requiring skiers to buy online in advance. It forced us to do some things that we had maybe been afraid to do in the past, said Hensroth. We were afraid people maybe would not do it and not come if they couldn't walk up to the ticket window, and really it's a much better way to do it. Can cost be a barrier to entry? Advanced ticket purchases not only help resorts prepare for guests during the season, but also for future investments in the business, Vales Olson said. Our passes have created incredible stability for our business in an industry that used to be ruled by weather, she said. By locking in revenue ahead of the season, we can better plan and reinvest in our resorts, lifts, snowmaking, etc., and our employees. We invested $175 million into employee wages and benefits this year. Vail estimates 70% of this season's traffic will come from pass holders. The vast majority of A Basin's visitors use some sort of pass or multi-day pack as well, hence Roth said. Less than 1% of guests pay the highest possible window ticket price, he added. Still, there are folks being left out of the equation. Patricia Cameron is founder and executive director of Black Pathers, a nonprofit that seeks to diversify the outdoors by curating recreational excursions for people of color. This season, Black Packers is hosting three ski trips that will bring more than 200 beginners to A Basin. According to a 2021-22 NSAA survey of 300,000 skiers, snowboarders, and snowbikers, 89% identified as white, while just 1.5% identified as black or African American. The costs associated with skiing are among the biggest barriers to entry, Cameron said. Even if buying a season pass is the most economical option, it requires a large investment up front, as does acquiring the necessary equipment and clothing, which is why the organization loans out gloves and goggles and covers the cost of a half-day lesson in gear rentals. In addition, 
newbies to snow sports may not have the institutional or generational knowledge to seek out pricing specials. What does savvy mean? You mean somebody who can look for deals on something they know nothing about prior? How do they do that? Cameron asked. Black Pathers has a partnership with A Basin that includes a special discount on lift tickets, so dynamic pricing doesn't affect the program. But most of the skiers Cameron brings to the mountain say they wouldn't be able to afford to try the sport without support from her organization. That's one of the reasons why we exist, to give people a chance, she said. If we can make dynamic pricing for the weather, why can't we make it for equitable purposes? Accessibility is top of mind for the NSAA and its 330-member resorts, according to Isaac, the Lakewood Group's spokesperson, who points to some of Colorado's small and medium-sized ski areas like Sunlight Ski Resort and Wolf Creek Ski Area, where lift tickets are often cheaper. No matter how big the resort, however, ticket prices will likely continue on an upward trajectory Though Ski Country USA's Mills said she doubts they will cross the $300 threshold anytime soon. That's a pretty significant difference from what a full price day lift ticket anywhere in Colorado costs today, she said. If I'm reading the tea leaves in front of me, I'm not seeing that as very likely in the foreseeable future. U.S. moves to head off a potential bank crisis by Ken Sweet, Christopher Rugeber, Chris McGarrian, and Kathy Busowitz of the AP. The U.S. government took extraordinary steps Sunday to stop a potential banking crisis after the historic failure of Silicon Valley Bank, assuring all depositors at the failed institution that they could access all their money quickly, even as another major bank was shut down. The announcement came amid fears that the factors that caused the Santa Clara, California-based bank to fail could spread. Regulators had worked all weekend to try to find a buyer for the bank, which was the second largest bank failure in history. Those efforts appeared to have failed Sunday. In a sign of how fast the financial bleeding has occurred, regulators announced that New York-based Signature Bank has also failed and was being seized on Sunday. At more than $110 billion in assets, Signature Bank is the third largest bank failure in U.S. history. In an effort to shore up confidence in the banking system, the Treasury Department, Federal Reserve, and FDIC said Sunday that all Silicon Valley Bank clients would be protected and able to access their money. They also announced steps that are intended to protect the bank's customers and prevent additional bank runs. This step will ensure the U.S. banking system continues to perform its vital roles of protecting deposits and providing access to credit to households and businesses in a manner that promotes strong and sustainable economic growth, the agency said in a joint statement. Under the plan, depositors at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, including those whose holdings exceed the $250,000 insurance limit, will be able to access their money on Monday. In a separate move, the Federal Reserve last Sunday announced an expensive emergency lending program that's intended to prevent a wave of bank runs that would threaten the stability of the banking system and the economy as a whole. Fed officials characterized the program as akin to what central banks have done for many decades. Lend freely to the banking system so that customers would be confident they could access their accounts whenever needed. 
The lending facility will allow banks that need to raise cash to pay depositors to borrow that money from the Fed rather than having to tell treasuries and other securities to raise the money. Silicon Valley Bank had been forced to dump some of its treasuries at a loss to fund its customers' withdrawals. Under the Fed's new program, banks can post those securities as collateral and borrow from the emergency facility. The Treasury has set aside $25 billion to offset any losses incurred under the Fed's emergency lending facility. Fed officials said, however, they do not expect to have to use any of that money given that the securities posted as collateral have a very low risk of default. Analysts said the Fed's program should be enough to calm financial financial markets on Monday. Monday will surely be a stressful day for many in the regional banking sector, but today's action dramatically reduces the risk of further contagion, economists at Jefferies, an investment bank, said in a research note. Those Sunday's steps marked the most extensive government intervention in the banking system since the 2008 financial crisis. Its actions are relatively limited compared with what was done 15 years ago. The two failed banks themselves have not been rescued and taxpayer money has not been provided to the banks. President Joe Biden said Sunday evening as he boarded Air Force One back to Washington that he would speak about the bank situation on Monday. In a statement, Biden also said he was firmly committed to holding those responsible for this mess fully accountable and to continuing our efforts to strengthen oversight and regulation of larger banks so that we are not in this position again. Regulators had to rush to close Silicon Valley Bank, a financial institution with more than $200 billion in assets, on Friday when it experienced a traditional run on the bank where depositors rushed to withdraw their funds all at once. It is the second largest bank failure in U.S. history, behind only the 2008 failure of Washington Mutual. Some prominent Silicon Valley executives feared that if Washington didn't rescue the failed bank, customers would make runs on other financial institutions in the coming days. Stock prices plunged over the last few days at other banks that catered to technology companies, including First Republic Bank and PacWest Bank. Among the bank's customers are a range of companies, from California's wine industries, where many wineries rely on Silicon Valley Bank for loans, and technology startups devoted to combating climate change. Sunrun, which sells and leases solar energy systems, had less than $80 million of cash deposits with Silicon Valley. Stitch Fix, the popular clothing retail website, disclosed in recent quarterly report that it had a credit line of up to $100 million with Silicon Valley Bank and other lenders. Tiffany Dufu, founder and CEO of The Crew, a New York-based career coaching platform and community for women, posted a video Sunday on LinkedIn from an airport bathroom saying the bank crisis was testing her resiliency. Given that her money was tied up at Silicon Valley Bank, she had to pay her employees out of her personal bank account. With two teenagers to support who will be heading to college, she said she was relieved to hear the government's intent is to make depositors whole. Small businesses and early-stage startups don't have a lot of access to leverage in a situation like this and we're often in a very vulnerable position, particularly when we have to fight so hard to get the wires into your bank account to begin with, 
particularly for me as a black female founder, Dufu told the Associated Press. Silicon Valley Bank began its slide into insolvency when its customers, largely technology companies that needed cash as they struggled to get financing, started withdrawing their deposits. The bank had to sell bonds at a loss to cover the withdrawals, leading to the largest failure of a U.S. financial institution since the height of the financial crisis. Yellen described rising interest rates, which have been increased by the Federal Reserve to combat inflation, as the core problem for Silicon Valley Bank. Many of its assets, such as bonds or mortgage-backed securities, lost market value as rates climbed. Sheila Baer, who was the chairwoman of the FDIC during the 2008 financial crisis, recalled that almost all the bank failures during that time, we sold a failed bank to a healthy bank, and usually the healthy acquirer would also cover the uninsured because they wanted the franchise value of those large depositors so optimally that's the best outcome. But with Silicon Valley Bank, she told NBC's Meet the Press, this was a liquidity failure. It was a bank run, so they didn't have time to prepare to market the bank. So they're having to do that now and playing catch-up. Anti-Trump GOP voters mostly loyal in 2022 by Hannah Fingerhut of the Associated Press. Representative Lauren Boebert's grip on Colorado's 3rd Congressional District didn't seem in question heading into last year's midterms, but in the end, the congresswoman who gained a national reputation as a combative member of the Make America Great Again movement won re-election by just 564 votes. This was supposed to be a slam dunk for the Republican candidate, the way the district is designed, said Don Corum, a former state senator who unsuccessfully challenged Bobert in the GOP primary last June. Bobert's near miss was a emblematic of the difficulties Republicans confronted in 2022 and may face again in 2024. While former President Donald Trump holds a tight grasp on much of the GOP's base, there is a notable minority of Republican voters who do not consider themselves MAGA members. Most of them, as faithful Republicans, backed GOP candidates in 2022, AP vote cast shows. Still, the extensive national survey finds these Republicans made up a larger percentage of those who opted not to support a candidate in House races. A sliver of them showed their opposition to Trump for a second time, backing Democrat Joe Biden for president in 2020 and Democratic House candidates in 2022. In a political climate where competitive elections are nationalized and decided by narrow margins, neither party can take these voters for granted. Democrat Adam Frisch said he knew there was a fairly unique opening for a more conservative Democrat to connect with Colorado voters who did not like Boebert's aggressive political style. I spent most of my time trying to convince people I was a safe enough choice not just to leave the ballot blank, but actually vote for a non-Republican for the first time ever or in a really long time, said Frisch, who has already announced he will run again in 2024 against Boebert. The findings suggest Democrats, too, may need to be wary of the messaging against MAGA Republicans, whom Biden hammered repeatedly before the November elections and is poised to do again in a 2024 campaign. Most of those who don't identify with the movement don't seem to find that compelling. Voters who do 
may be eager to revert to a Republican candidate who represents their traditional conservative values. Republican strategist Alex Conant suggested GOP candidates cannot count on these voters so long as Trump is involved in politics, but 2024 can be different. There is no reason the Republican nominee in 2024 can't put together a condition a coalition that includes Trump's base and moderate Republicans and independents, he said. Conant and others pointed to examples of Republican governors, Ron DeSantis in Florida, Mike DeWine in Ohio, and Brian Kemp in Georgia, who were able to do that in 2022. In Ohio and Georgia, for example, the two governors outperformed Republican candidates for Senate who were endorsed by Trump. DeWine earned nearly 390,000 votes more than J.D. Vance, who won an open seat, and Kemp received 200,000-plus more votes in the general election than did Herschel Walker, who failed to unseat a Democratic incumbent in a later runoff. According to VoteCast, 10% of Republican voters who don't identify as MAGA Republicans voted for Democratic House candidates nationwide, compared with 2% of those who embraced that label. Overall, 4% of Republicans backed Democratic candidates. That percentage swelled in competitive races for Senate and governor where far-right candidates were on the ballot, including as many as 13% of Republicans in Arizona, 16% in Colorado, and 18% in Pennsylvania, and 11% in Michigan. The Lincoln Project, a conservative group that staunchly opposes Trump, has targeted this voting bloc in elections. Co-founder Rick Wilson said it's a narrow pathway, but a meaningful one, to electing pro-democracy, anti-extremist candidates, one that he thinks has expanded since 2020 because of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Still, partisanship can be sticky, Wilson said, and traditional Republicans value checks and balances in Washington, driving disaffected conservative voters to support Republicans as an offset to Democrats. VoteCast shows more Republicans voted for Republicans, even if they did so with reservations. Republicans who don't identify with the MAGA movement and decided to back Republican candidates mostly say they didn't consider Trump good or bad when they voted. Only after half are positive in ratings of Trump himself, but most are favorable toward the party and say the GOP tends to try to do what's right. About two-thirds of them say they voted to show opposition to Biden. They're where I am. What choice do we have, said GOP strategist Rick Tyler. There are many in the Republican Party who would love to not vote Republican, but they can't vote Democrat because they don't believe in where Democrats want to take the country. Non-MAGA Republicans are more likely than MAGA Republicans to say that Biden has was legitimately elected president. They also are more likely to say they decided over the course of the campaign which candidate they would back as compared with knowing all along. Back in Colorado, Karen Davis, 58, was a lifelong Republican until a few years ago when she changed her voter registration because of the alarming rhetoric of the party, particularly the far right. Her vote for Biden in 2020 was more of a vote against Trump, she said. And last year, she backed Frisch over Boebert. What's really sad is you're not excited about any of these candidates, said Davis, who runs a flooring business in Grand Junction with her husband. If the Republicans could get a candidate I was excited about, I would absolutely vote for them. 
to her that's somebody who a fiscal conservative but a moderate in every other way, Davis said. They can't win me back with Donald Trump. Patients report losing access to other drugs by Christina Jewett and Ellen Gabler of the New York Times. Nearly a year after a sweeping opioid settlement imposed new requirements on the companies that provide medications to pharmacies, patients across the United States are having difficulty obtaining drugs to treat many conditions, including anxiety, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, and addiction. The $21 billion settlement, which was brokered between a the three largest American pharmaceutical distributors and the attorneys general of 46 states was designed in part to correct practices that had flooded the country with prescription painkillers contributing to the nation's opioid crisis. Distributors are placing strict limits on drug supplies to individual pharmacies and heavily scrutinizing their dispensing activity. But the oversight is not limited to opioids. It applies to an array of drugs known as controlled substances that have the potential to be addictive or habit-forming, such as muscle relaxants relaxants, or medications such as Xanax used to treat anxiety and panic disorders. As a result, tens of thousands of drug orders have been canceled, disrupting the flow of medication nationwide as the distributors, powerful but little-known wholesalers, navigate the line between implementing safeguards and making necessary drugs available. Elisa Bernstein, CEO of the American Pharmacists Association, said the controls which took effect in July had created havoc for some pharmacies. They have patients coming in to get medication and they can't have it, Bernstein said. It's disrupting patient care. The distributors use algorithms that cap the quantities of controlled substances a pharmacy can sell in a month. Before the settlement, pharmacists said they could explain to a distributor the reason for a surge in demand and still receive medications past their limits. Now the caps appear to be more rigid. Drugs are cut off with no advance notice or rapid recourse. As a condition of the settlement, distributors cannot tell pharmacies that what the thresholds are. Distributors are also monitoring orders that appear to mirror the practices of pill mills that blanketed the country with opioids, including the dispensing of certain combinations of drugs, such as opioids and sedatives, or filling orders for people who live far away. Attorneys General who led the settlement talks had accused distributors of asking few questions and profiting heavily as they shipped billions of deadly pills to communities devastated by overdoses. But some doctors said legitimate prescriptions were being caught in the dragnet, while pharmacists said they were declining to dispense some medications for fear of setting off triggers. Distributors can investigate and resolve red flags if they are satisfied by a pharmacy's explanation, but they can also stop supplying them with controlled drugs altogether. Swept up in the scrutiny are college students far from home trying to fill their Adderall prescriptions, patients in rural areas where it is customary to drive long distances for medical care, and hospice providers that rely on local pharmacies for controlled substances instead of on a specialized supplier that could be exempt from the limits, the New York Times found. Restrictions on controlled substances had already been ratcheted up for years as concerns about abuse grew during the opioid epidemic. 
More recently, shortages of some drugs, such as Adderall, which is used to treat ADHD, made those medications hard to get. The settlement with distributors appears to have tightened supplies even more. Psychiatrists in California were so alarmed by patients' stories of unfilled prescriptions that they sent a survey to colleagues in December. They received reports of dozens of such problems, said Dr. Emily Wood, chair of the Government Affairs Committee of the California State Association of Psychiatrists. Wood said the patients who take a stimulant for ADHD sometimes need anti-anxiety pills or sedative at night to sleep, but the pharmacists now tell them they cannot have the combination. Pharmacists aren't calling the doctors to work it out, Wood said, They're just not filling the prescriptions. A spokesperson for one major distributor involved in the settlement, Amerisource Bergen, said the company was deeply aware of the impact for patients and their families when access to therapies are interrupted. The effort to hold companies responsible for their role in the opioid crisis is continuing. In December, federal prosecutors accused Amerisource Bergen of systematically failing to flag suspicious orders, saying the distributor could face billions more in penalties. In response, Amerisource Bergen accused federal officials of shifting the burden of policing pharmacies to private companies. Amerisource Bergen has warned pharmacies on its website to expect more orders to be flagged by the company's monitoring system, saying they would be automatically canceled and reported. In a statement, the company said it was seeking guidance from government agencies on how to prevent the misuse of these drugs without interfering with good-faith clinical decisions made by doctors. The other distributors in the settlement, Cardinal Health and McKesson, did not respond to requests for comment. Although the tighter restrictions have been in place for months, the government has offered little remedy for patients. Two trade groups, the National Community Pharmacists Association and the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy, said they had contacted the Drug Enforcement Administration about problems with access to controlled substances. The DEA declined to comment, but in January, the agency issued guidance saying distributors were responsible for setting limits. A spokesperson for the North Carolina Attorney General's Office, a lead negotiator for the settlement, said there was no effort underway to change the agreement and the offices of three other state attorneys general did not respond to requests for comment. Still, this year lawmakers in Arkansas introduced a bill that would limit distributors' power to cut off controlled substances to pharmacies. The country's two largest pharmacy chains, Walgreens and CVS Health, declined to comment for the settlement's effect on their stores. But data provided by five states showed that since last summer, tens of thousands of pharmacy deliveries had been halted because of suspicious orders, including hitting the monthly cap. Distributors report each of these to the DEA and, in most cases, state regulators. Although some pharmacists have scrambled to get backup supplies and some doctors have spent hours on the phone to help patients over the new hurdles, many other patients have been left empty-handed. Charity Benefield, 42, was in the middle of radiation treatments for cancer in northwest Arkansas and was facing a series of surgeries when Amerisource Bergen blocked her pharmacy from buying controlled drugs in November. 
Benefield tried to find another local pharmacy to fill her prescriptions for pain and anxiety. At least four refused, she said. On days when she did not have enough pills, she would vomit from the pain. Ultimately, her oncologist called an Oklahoma City chain pharmacy that agreed to fill her prescriptions at a location 90 minutes from her home. Amerisaurus Bergen had cut off her usual pharmacy, SuperSave Drug, over a series of what was deemed red flags. The pharmacy's owner, Mark Maines, sought a court order to allow him to continue dispensing controlled substances, but was initially denied after failing to report that he had suffered irreparable harm. He had lost about 15% of his business. Still, the federal judge overseeing the case wrote in an opinion last month that Amerisource Bergen had displayed bureaucratic rigidity while the pharmacy had used sound judgment. Although pharmacists can request increases to their controlled drug limits, distributors must thoroughly vet each request, which can be a lengthy process. A pharmacist in Washington state who did not want to be identified as having potent pain drugs on hand said his morphine supply had been cut off before the end of a month, nearly preventing him from fulfilling a large contract with the local hospice. He found another source for that order, but six weeks after asking his distributor to increase his threshold, he was has not received an answer. There's not an independent pharmacy I've talked to that hasn't had a problem with not getting medication shipped because they hit some threshold and they don't know about it, said Jenny Arnold, CEO of the Washington State Pharmacy Association. Most young Coloradans want rent stabilization, survey finds. In 10 counties, with most young renters, at least 40% say they paid more than 30% of income toward housing, by Elizabeth Hernandez of the Denver Post. A new survey details how Colorado's rent prices keep the state's young residents from seeking medical care, buying groceries, and pursuing a college degree, and it found a majority of young Coloradans support rent stabilization policies. The survey released Monday by Progressive Youth advocacy organization New Era Colorado polled 506 Coloradans between 18 and 34 and was weighted by gender, race, ethnicity, education, and voter registration to match the characteristics of Colorado's 18 to 34-year-old population based on data from the U.S. Census Bureau, according to New Era Colorado. We're creating an environment in Colorado where We're radicalizing young people to get involved in politics because if they can't afford to live, pay their medical debt, their student loans, then people are going to start getting involved to change that, said Tash Berwick, a New Era Colorado political director. A map produced by New Era Colorado using Census Bureau data illustrates a breakdown of Colorado counties by the number of young people cost-burdened by rent, paying more than 30% of their income toward housing, New Era Colorado said. In Colorado's 10 counties with the most young renters, at least 40% paid more than 30% of their income toward housing, New Era found, including 60% of young households in Boulder County, 52% in El Paso County, and 42% in Denver. In 17 of Colorado's 64 counties, at least half of households pay unaffordable rent, New Era found. 
Young people are saying loud and clear, and Governor Polis agrees, that rent is too damn high in Colorado, said Nicole Hensel, Executive Director of New Era Colorado, in a news release. This survey shows that young people across the state increasingly can't afford to live here, giving up careers, families, and futures in Colorado. Young people deserve to live where their lives are. How does that housing unaffordability impact Colorado's young adults? New Era's survey found nearly 25% of surveyed youth neglected a medical appointment, 19% went without a behavioral health appointment to make rent, about 30% of young people skipped groceries to pay rent, about 26% of those surveyed passed up an opportunity for a college degree to pay for housing. Nearly 40% of young people said they plan to leave Colorado to find more affordable housing. These survey results matter, Berwick said, because they show legislators what their constituents want. Young Coloradans, who New Era said comprised the largest voting bloc in the state and turn out in record numbers, want to see bold action, Berwick said, no matter their political party. Meanwhile, 8 in 10, or 81% of young people, supported giving local governments the option to place limits on how much landlords can raise rent each year, including almost half, or 48% of young Republicans surveyed and 96% of young Democrats in Colorado. At the Capitol, we often get really stuck in these binaries about which party is so far left and which is so far right, but when you look at the data, the policies people really want are more bipartisan than we think, Berwick said. When asked whether they would support or oppose rent stabilization policies that would ensure renters have reasonable, predictable rents, 91% of survey respondents supported rent stabilization policies, including 68% of Republican respondents and 97% of Democratic respondents. Young adults are especially hard hit by outrageous rent prices charged by some greedy corporate landlords, said Carmen Madrano, the co-chair of Colorado Homes for All. When four out of ten young people say they won't be able to stay in the communities they grew up in because they can't afford housing, we have a real problem. Bill for sports and concerts would set national precedent. Co-sponsors Priola, Degree Kennedy say the market is deeply underserved by John Wenzel of the Denver Post. State legislators this week plan to vote on a bill that would require substance-free seating for Colorado sporting events and concerts at venues with more than 7,000 seats, including stadiums, arenas, and amphitheaters. Senate Bill 23-171, introduced February 27th by Colorado Senator Kevin Priola and Representative Chris Degree Kennedy, would require venues such as Ball Arena, Coors Field, Red Rocks Amphitheater, and Empower Field at Mile High to offer 4% of their audience capacity as substance-free seating where alcohol, tobacco, and other substances would be banned. The bill addresses the need for families and people in addiction recovery to have substance-free spaces at sporting events and concerts, co-sponsor Priola said Friday, and is part of a growing national movement towards such spaces. The bill would also set a national precedent as the first of its type in the country, although some sports stadiums, including Coors Field, already offer small alcohol-free sections for families. There's a growing sober community and segment of the market 
that isn't being represented, Priola said. In the U.S., 9% of people at any one time are trying to recover from addiction, and if you add in families that don't want a bunch of people partaking around them, 4% is completely reasonable. If passed, failure to comply with the bill would be basis for refusal or denial of an alcohol beverage license renewal or initial license issuance and other forms of license-related discipline, according to the bill's text. Priola, who has been working with sports teams and venues owners to build support for the bill and has people lined up to endorse it at its late-week hearing, he said. If passed, the bill would take effect in 2026, giving teams and venues and promoters time to work with season ticket holders who might be affected by the new seating areas as well as other legal and logistical concerns. Colorado's liquor and enforcement declined to comment on the proposed bill, saying the governor's office would weigh in only if it passes. Denver-based concert promoter AEG presents Rocky Mountains also declined to comment on the potential effect on ticket prices and seating layouts. Complicating the bill is the fact that most Colorado sports and concert venues have maintained sponsorship deals with liquor and beer companies. In addition, beer, liquor, and wine consumption is up year over year in Colorado as of 2020, according to data from the Pro Industry Beverage Information Group and Park Street Analyses. The Colorado Department of Revenue also showed a general upward trend in liquor excise taxes since 2016, according to a recent report. The bill would have unintended negative consequences for Colorado restaurants and bars, according to Colin Larson, Director of Government Affairs at the Colorado Restaurant Association. While we applaud the underlying goal of supporting people in recovery, this bill would create an unreasonable and unsustainable situation for independent food and beverage vendors with stadium locations, endangering their businesses and their employees' livelihoods, he said in a statement provided to the Denver Post. This bill would punish these operators for circumstances outside of their control, as they have no way to police where customers go after they purchase an alcohol beverage in a stadium setting, Larson said. The unintended consequences here put stadium employees and vendors at great disadvantage, opening the door for customer complaints and lost revenue. The bill would not affect off-premise alcohol consumption or sales, according to its language, but it would still represent a further decaying of the state's liquor industry, said Chris Fine, executive director of the Colorado Licensed Beverage Association. We deal with off-premise sales in mom-and-pop liquor stores, but I know that addressing addiction is a big passion project of Senator Priola Fine said. However, we did just see billions of -of out-of-state dollars come in trying to eradicate our industry in relation to wine sales at grocery stores, which began March 1st, so this would just be another eroding effect. Priola said the bill's bar may seem high, but that public health campaigns against cigarettes, vaping, and other addictive substances have succeeded in the past and that his bill has the same potential. I've done a lot with opioid legislation and on other substance-related committees, and what I've learned in that time, especially working with the CU Anschutz Medical Center, is that alcohol use disorder is the biggest one out there. It just happens to be the most socially acceptable. Walking through magnet magnetometers and undergoing other rigorous 
risk security checks at public events seem Decronian 20 years ago, Priola said, and now it's standard. People can be retrained. But taking his own kids to sporting events and seeing unruly substance-driven behavior also inspired the bill, Priola said. He acknowledged the enforcement would be complicated and that passage is likely an uphill battle given the lack of response from liquor industry players. He said he'll introduce it as many times as necessary until it passes. There are Ready there are already mechanisms at venues to report issues with rowdy attendees, and this would piggyback on that, he said. But I think large entertainment venues, most of which are publicly funded, could look at this as a market opportunity to serve a broader customer base. In sports, a hole too deep. Nuggets lose third straight despite Jokic's monster triple-double. My Mike Singer of the Denver Post Denver's resiliency was pronounced and unequivocal. It just came too late. Had Nikola Jokic's turnaround three-pointer at the buzzer dropped, the Nuggets would have erased a 15-point fourth-quarter deficit that would have snapped their losing streak. Their defense would have been celebrated, their toughness and tenacity championed. Instead, the Nuggets' lethargic effort for most of Sunday afternoon dug a hole too deep to recover from, resulting in a 122-120 to loss to the Nets their third consecutive defeat. Denver dropped to 46-22 overall and 30-6 and at home with a five-game road trip on deck. It happens, Nuggets coach Michael Malone said, citing another lopsided quarter that swung the game. We probably spoiled a lot of people. Jokic finished with 35 points, 20 rebounds, and 11 assists, nearly willing his team back from its huge deficit. That it came with Jamal Murray injured, he didn't play late due to left knee soreness, would have made it even more impressive. Malone didn't have an update on Murray's knee during his post-game interview. Losing stinks, Malone said. The Nets buried 17 three-pointers, exposing an area Denver had been sound and were led by Michael Bridges' 25 points. Michael Porter Jr. scored 23 points, though he played sparingly down the stretch, and Murray had 16 before he exited. The Nuggets' comeback was sparked by Christian Braun, whose impact in the fourth quarter on both ends presented a convincing case that he should remain in the rotation. It's not the end of the world, Braun said of the team's three-game losing streak. We're extremely talented. The Nuggets opened the third quarter with the urgency of a July pickup game, There were disjointed, sloppy possessions, inexplicable turnovers, and numerous examples of lazy defense. At one point, Brooklyn had outscored Denver 31-14 in the quarter. Frustration mounted with the whistle as both Kentavious Caldwell-Pope and Bruce Brown picked up technical fouls. The bench unit, which on Sunday didn't include Thomas Bryant, was untrustworthy again. Through three quarters, they'd only managed eight points total. By the end of the third, Brooklyn had registered 37 points, while the Nuggets connected on just five field goals throughout the period. Denver trailed 98-87, to heading into the fourth. Malone had a relatively simple message for his team before the game. Let's get back to playing our brand of basketball, he said before the game. If we want to get back to winning games, we have to remember what's allowed us to be as successful as we have been. That always starts with defense and rebounding, running, and executing. The other component Malone reinforced to his squad was that nothing mattered more than the next opponent. Jokic entered the halftime break with 19 points, 11 rebounds, and 7 assists. 
He played an aggressive brand of basketball as if to say, we're a better team than we've shown of late. His chemistry with Porter shined. In one tantalizing sequence, Jokic swatted a Nets attempt on one end, then threw an outlet to Porter for a transition three-pointer. Three Jokic stole the next possession, too, then outletted to Aaron Gordon for another three-pointer. Porter poured in 19 points, including three of four from outside. Following a relatively quiet first half, Murray ended the second quarter with a 34-foot three-pointer. Before heading to the locker room, he reveled in the shot, high-fiving a few courtside fans along the way. Position Battle Unfolds Month Before Playoffs by Bennett Durando of the Denver Post When the Avs are fully healthy, their six best defensemen and their six best forwards stack up with almost any team. But what if the Avalanche will not be fully healthy when the playoffs arrive in one month? That's increasingly plausible, especially for the forwards as Captain Gabriel Landeskog inches without a timeline toward returning from his October knee surgery. As long as that remains the case, it's Coach Jared Bednar's job to concoct a contingency plan as to who would be Colorado's sixth member of the top six. The first five are established, Nathan McKinnon, Mikko Rantanen, Valerie Nichushkin, Arturi Lekkanen, and J.T. Comfer. McKinnon and Comfer are the centers. For a sense of Bednar's thought process about how to color the lineup around them, start with the most essential characters. McKinnon and Rantanen are two best offensive players, as Bednar said Saturday after a 3-2 win over Arizona. For weeks now, Bednar has divided those two, with Rantanen playing right wing on the second line. McKinnon centers the top line. Everyone has their own opinion on what our lineup should look like. Lots of people want me to put McKinnon with Ranton and Bednar acknowledged last week. But McKinnon's on pace for a career high in points and Ranton and already broke his career high in goals. So I think both those guys are playing well away from each other, which gives our team more depth. McKinnon's 1.49 points per game rank third in the NHL. In 16 games since the NHL All-Star break, he has set has 15 goals and 10 assists. Rantanen, meanwhile, is chasing the Avalanche's first 50-goal season in 20 years. So Rantanen has teamed up with Comfer, where I think it's been a pretty easy match for me, Bednar said. Alex Newhook started the season as the second-line center candidate, but Comfer emerged as the clear choice. The coach's more specific mission, then? I'm looking for someone to play with Comfer and Miko, he said. That's my priority. With Rantanen and McKinnon split up, Lekkonen and Nishchushkin are the two wings that fill in on McKinnon's top line. The left-handed Rantanen likes playing on his off-hand side, so the opening in question is second-line left wing where Landeskog would feasibly fit. Bender frequently blended his lineups in pursuit of an answer during a recent slump that saw the Avalanche lose four consecutive games when facing playoff teams. Evan Rodriguez was the best offensive skill set among the candidates, making him a sensible fit, but his point production has declined recently with four points in the last 16 games. Bednar moved Rodriguez down to the bottom six during Colorado's 73 loss in Dallas last Saturday. He had tried Newhook in the LW2 opening earlier in the week, but didn't like the 22-year-old's fit. My feeling is that Erod needs to play on that second line, Bednar said. He's the guy. Thank you for joining us for the Denver Post. My name is Dee Hyslop. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at 
www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.